meditating with the hands together. You probably all know this in your yoga mudras. In India, this means namaste, namaskar. I see the divine in you. And in our Buddhist practice, this is a way of showing respect. Respect to one another, respect to the teaching, to the teacher. It's also a sign of peace, isn't it? I think in Christian prayer, this is very often the way we pray. It's a prayer or petition. The hands kept together. If your hands are together like this, very difficult to hurt anyone. Unless you're a judo expert. <laughs> so, I thought I would offer some reflections today. And uh, there's different, so many different people. A lot of you I know, good friends, old friends, and some of you I may never have met. But we meet here because this is the yoga connection. (laughs) And if we're all spiritual seekers and we're interested in understanding ourselves more deeply, then we're all moving in the same direction. We're trying to become connected internally to the truth that is within us. And that activity, it's a bit like when you go to, um, I don't want to make this trivial, but you notice sometimes people get together for an old car rally. And you see all these old cars driving on the road and they're all meeting at an old car rally. And they all know their cars. They, They like to admire each other's cars. And they feel like old friends because they're, everyone's interested in old cars. And so here we are, some of us are driving, or at least the body is like an old car. <laughs> <laughs> when we get together, we feel like we know each other because the hair is getting, if there's any left, <laughs> getting gray or white or there's more wrinkles or, or we're, you know, old age, sickness and death. Birth, old age, sickness and death is something that all of us share. So even if we're not old yet, we're go- all going in that direction. That's not something to feel sad about. Not in, in the tradition in which I'm trained. In fact, it's something that we're all connected in. And that's very, very important. Which means that there are truths. There's a body of wisdom or a a deep reservoir of wisdom that all of us have the capacity and the potential to share and be enriched by. So when we come together as spiritual seekers or aspirants, then we immediately are like relatives in old age, sickness, and death. That doesn't mean we're going to die together. But it means that we have a common understanding about the process. Is it true? (laughs) Then when you sit down to meditate and you think, oh, my mind is so wild. But one thing you could know is that if we have a screen on behind this curtain instead of a mirror, but a mirror is a good image. 
if all of us had to reveal the contents of our minds in that mirror and you were seeing what everybody else's mind was doing it would be very comforting because we're all experiencing similar things and it's through practice of stilling the mind calming the mind and observing and restraining the fluctuations of consciousness as you do in your yoga practice that we begin to understand this process and not be overpowered by it so in yoga you you begin with physical postures to uh, learn how to restrain consciousness in the Buddhist practice we begin with mental postures if we will well we start with physical four physical postures can you yoga experts guess what they are well one of them is sitting and the other one is standing and there's only two left <laughs> lying down and walking walking actually meditation can be done in any posture but those are the four basic postures that we use and lying down is a difficult one because it's easy to fall asleep but it's highly recommended because that's going to be probably our last posture and for me this life is a preparation for that dying moment and that's not a pessimistic thought you might think, well, no, it's grim. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, um, life, if you're studying the meaning of life, really, then the preparation to die is the best thing we could do because we don't know when it's going to happen. And if we keep thinking that it's a long way away, then we might be wasting precious moments. It's, it's, it's in that act of non-complacency that we really urge ourselves on it's like going into the emergency room and they might be looking for one thing and then they discover something really wrong that we get we get straightened out we get the healing we need and it's the same with spiritual practice when I first started meditating I, I had an urgent wish to do so but I don't think I really knew what I was getting into and I never realized that I was going to end up like this and I think I would have been terrified if I had known then what I know now in a way it would have been too frightening to even contemplate I know so many people that begin to meditate just because they want to relieve stress and people who begin yoga just because they want to lose weight what you begin to find is that more than weight that you're losing or more than stress that you're shedding or maybe I should have said that the other way around is that you begin to find out that you don't even know who you are you begin to realize that you don't even know how to use your body properly in yoga you may not be walking right, sitting right holding yourself right and if you learn how to do those things well you begin to feel more peaceful as a human being you begin to breathe better the same is true in meditation even though we only use those four main postures we begin to learn that meditation is something that we can do all the time in every posture and it's not just to 
um, feel better in our relationship with our boss or to make peace with the fact that we've got a terminal diagnosis from the doctor but to understand who we really are and why we're on this planet so meditation is a way to discover how to to drive on the inner highway in fact this is our car it is our vehicle and the breath and mindful being mindful of the breath is learning how to use the gears of the mind in order to empty out all the rubbish that we carry in our minds which cause us stress which make us suffer and uh, bring a lot of unhappiness into our lives so then it becomes something much more interesting than just well I'll go and meditate once a week or I'll become a Buddhist and have a religion that's quite popular or I'll be able to meet the Dalai Lama and listen to his scintillating talk (laughs) it's not about that in fact being being able to understand who we really are um, is, is not very often associated with what Buddhists do and if you ask what does Buddhism mean the, the Buddha Buddha means the awakened mind or bodhicitta is enlightened awareness the consciousness that has been restrained and purified of all fluctuation it means the ending of the movements in the mind how much do we love when a spring day finally comes after the storms of winter and we can go sit in the sunshine for a moment and take a deep breath in and a deep breath out and hear some cardinal song in the garden it's such a brilliant moment some mo- a moment that's so priceless and then of course the phone rings and we're we're back rushing that kind of peace to be able to sustain it we need to really understand how the mind works we need to also understand how the body works when you sit down to meditate and you notice that your mind is wild that's the beginning of our education the education about what is it to be aware because you could see there's consciousness and there's the wildness of the mind what is it that knows that wildness consciousness does it what is it that knows the suffering in the mind consciousness knows it when when we talk about developing the Buddha mind or Buddha nature it means simply coming to such a deep stillness within ourselves that we understand what we really are and what we really are is not that activity in the mind it's not that wilderness of greed, hatred, anger, delusion, confusion, pride, conceit, greed, sorrow, pain it's that feeling of oneness with our true nature with this moment exactly as it is no matter how wild the mind is we can still sit and observe it without any movement the body doesn't want to move we just sit with the curiosity of a child and we know it ah it's a wild just like a mother that sees the child wild 
She still loves the child. Well, your cat or a dog, frisky little puppy dog, runs everywhere. Just because it runs around, we don't feel aversion towards it. We just restrain it. So when the mind is wild, we learn how to restrain that fluctuation of consciousness. We educate ourselves about these fluctuations, how they arise, and how to bring them to cessation. And that's basically what the Buddha's instructions guide us to do, is to learn how to bring our minds to that point of stillness so that the, the joy we have of listening to the song of the Cardinal can be something that we can sustain when, even when life is, is coming towards us with the fury of a winter storm. We're not overwhelmed. We don't go into states of darkness, gloom, and depression. Pain in the body, the pain of losing a loved one, the pain of a, or the fear of death approaching because we have a cancer or we had a stroke and we're, we're very debilitated or we're dying and we're fearful or a child is dying or a child has committed suicide, a child of ours. Or we're carrying around so much guilt that we're not able to function properly in life. We cannot, we cannot come anymore to the connection with, with our true nature. We become caught up in the negativity, in the storms, the weather systems of the heart. And this is, this is the greatest disability a human being can experience. It's like having your feet and your hands cut off. You can't function. I was telling a group just the other day about a friend of mine who passed away a couple of years ago. His name was Scott, and he was in a car accident 27 years ago now and left a quadriplegic. That means he could only move his head. So for 25 years of his life, because he died two years ago, Scott lay in bed, and his beautiful mother, Marge, nursed him, took care of him, bathed him, fed him, lit his cigarettes for him, because he could still smoke. <laughs> but he couldn't. The cigarette just hung out of his lips and he puffed. If someone wasn't there, he'd get burned by it. So he always had to have somebody next to him. And I used to come and sit by Scott's bed and read poems to him and chat to him about emptiness. Somehow, through that suffering, this young man had learned how to empty his heart of all wanting, of moving out to wanting to change things, to wishing that he wasn't the way he was. He just really was really at peace with what had happened. And a lot of people used to come to him and talk to him, and he'd say to me, you know, you know, sister, these people, they come and stand in front of me, and they, all they do is complain. They tell me about how bad life is, how depressed they are, they hate their wives, they hate their, their sons, they hate their sickness, they're, they're old, they're decrepit, they hate the politicians, and they go on and on and on. He says, look at me. They're the ones that are complaining. It was so inspiring to... This is a true story. I know it sounds hard to believe, I found him to be a real hero. 
There are other heroes like Scott. Some of you may know them. Maybe some of you are like that already. And that's, that's, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do that? When we think about our problems. It's not to trivialize the difficulties that each of us are faced with as we get sick or face sickness, as we get old and face the weak, weakness, the loss of memory, the debility of old age, and as we approach death. But all I'm saying is, it's possible to go beyond the physical conditions and find an island of peace in the heart, which cannot be, it's indestructible, it's unshakable. And even if the mind, now just thinking about all this trail of people that used to, they loved coming to see Scott. They felt so peaceful. Why? They'd dump all their garbage on him and then out the door. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to be able to sit still and listen to all the garbage in our minds and not, and just smile at it and say, yeah, another tantrum, so what? <laughs> it doesn't matter. And it works. I get tantrums, but <laughs> I think I'm learning how to exercise that smile in the heart that's able to welcome, that's the welcoming of the breath. Practice that yoga of the breath. So no matter how awful it feels, to practice that way of educating myself about well, what is that in there? Why? What is that? What is it that I'm so afraid of? I can still breathe. I just have to offer that breath a cup of tea. Come in. Sit down with it. Be with it. Open the heart. Let, let the space in the heart become bigger. That's what it is to practice restraining ourselves from believing and identifying with that wildness in the mind and getting drowned by it. It's through knowing what we really are. We are not those silly voices, deluded voices, angry voices, fearful, shouting, traumatized, depressed. Those voices, we are not that. The practice of sitting with all that distraction and all that pain, that's the way that we develop the Buddha mind or bodhicitta. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible patience. And there's no pill, unfortunately, <laughs> that will do it for us. Did you, anybody here read Alice in Wonderland? <laughs> one pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small and one pill doesn't do anything at all. <laughs> That's the pill we have to take. It's the pill that doesn't do anything at all. We just sit there and... What happens if somebody shouts at you and you don't react to them? Have you ever tried that? It's a way of not feeding their anger. And what will happen? The first time, they might be so surprised that they'll just keep shouting anyway. But the second time they try it, they might be so surprised by your silence that they just, they'll stop. They might stop, or they might just change the subject because they'll realize how foolish they are to continue. What's the fun, or what's the, what stimulation do they get if there's no one to fight with? And it's the same within the mind. If we don't, if we don't react to the angry voices within us, 
then what do they do? They, they, they just become quiet. Just like the little doggy that you welcome it to sit next to, they just come and settle down eventually. It's a, it's a wonderful, miraculous practice to forgive those difficult moments. To say to the person you hate, you're okay. You might not say it out loud to them, but just by not reacting, by even smiling, or by saying something nice to them, how's your mother? Or why don't you come and have a cup of coffee with me? I remember not long ago, I had to welcome somebody that had been very nasty to me at one time. I was quite unsure how all this was going to be because, see, we sit in here and meditate with the difficulty we have in our own minds. But to actually be able to take that up into the world and practice it with people that you don't get along with, that's where the real work starts. So if we practice meditation and develop the skills of, of calming the mind and coming to the still point within us, then we can walk out of here and feel very proud of ourselves and someone can come along and say, you good for nothing. <laughs> and, whoa, the anger surges forward. So to, to be able to practice what we're doing here and to be able to bring up the sense of unconditional love or unconditional kindness and forgiveness to people we, we don't really think very well of. And to change our perception of them, that's, that's really where it begins. And, and I thought I prepared myself in advance because I wasn't sure what would happen. And I thought, I'll prepare a bouquet of flowers and I'll offer it. And it was most wonderful reconciliation. The reaction of that person was, I think, well, what can you do when someone offers you flowers? It was just such a loving moment. Yes, we can make peace with each other, but one of us has to put down our, our anger, our bitterness, our grudge, holding on to the past, let it go, sweep away that, that unwholesome feeling in the heart. These are toxins. Now, coming to the... I could go on about this, but I have a little agenda here. Speaking of toxins, the earth, the earth is full of toxins, and where have they come from? The earth is reeling with, with pain and sickness and unwellness. And we, as a human race, have to take responsibility for that. And it's becoming very critical. So, by practicing this meditation and realizing how we can connect to our deepest resource, uh, the reservoir of purity and goodness within us, we can then learn how to bring that into ethical excellence. In fact, in Zen practice, the definition of enlightenment is ethical perfection. And I believe that the way of purifying the planet is to begin by purifying, purifying ourselves in body, in our actions, our speech, and our thoughts. And so, in order to empty the world of these toxins, we have to empty our own hearts of all the rubbish that we carry around from past 
traumas or from unwholesome conditioning that has happened to us over lifetimes. And we begin to do that in simple ways by sitting down to study where am I? What am I holding? What's making me sick? What's making me ill? And what is the medicine that I can take? And the medicine is not to be angry at our anger, to be frightened of our fear, to be to allow ourselves to be complacent with delusion. But it's to educate ourselves about how to take the medicine that, for example, the Buddha offers of guiding ourselves in the ways of goodness, understanding how the mental process and the physical process can come to a point of healthy and ethical union here in the still point of the heart, and bringing that into our daily life. Step by step, this is a lifetime project. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not. We have to take the little pill that doesn't do anything at all, but we can't take it just today. We have to keep doing this over and over again through our own volition. The difference in Buddhism is there's no savior out there who's going to do it for us. We ourselves have to take responsibility. There's no God who's going to clean up the planet for us. We have to do it ourselves in the right way. Right now, every Canadian has a carbon footprint, I believe, of 7.6. The planet can only tolerate a per capita, per person in the world, footprint of 1.8. We are way over the top. We are overwhelming our world. But our minds are overwhelmed also. So ask yourselves, what is my ethical footprint? What do I need to do to purify, to straighten out my own life? Little by little, take up precepts. Make vows to yourself, vows that you can keep. Just one thing at a time. Learn how to breathe well for a moment, a day. Be kind to your neighbor, your husband, your wife, your kids, yourself. Forgive yourself for things you've done in the past. Stop holding on to them. Love yourself. You have so much goodness. The seed of this awakening is in you. Whether you believe it or not, don't listen to your opinions anymore. Remember the people like Scott. Even if you were damaged, broken, there is so much to salvage. Begin now and believe you can do it and go to the places where people can help you and keep you company in good ways so that we can work together to create the conditions not just for the survival of the planet unless we change the ways our societies, our cultures are organized and educated about how to live skillfully it's not going to happen But we have to believe that it can happen. And we have to begin right here, in one moment, in watching how our own minds fluctuate because of storms. And how much, if we follow what we love, like the song of the cardinal, then we want that sustainability. And we, we go towards that.